0: The Irony of Talking About the Irony of American History on America's Birthday, coming up on Love Thy Neighbor.
1: You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Niebuhr.
0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is entirely dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of your boy, Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined as always by co-hosts Zach Narson and Aaron Duncan. Just to look ahead for a moment, we have interviewed the editors of the relatively newly released book, Paradoxical Virtue, and those interviews will be uploaded in the coming weeks. Of course, we also have the Was dorian debate still coming up later in the month. But today we have a very special guest, one we've been looking forward to interviewing for quite a while, and I've been looking forward to talking to since like 2006. His name is Dr. Andrew Bacevich. He is Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at the Boston University Frederick S. Pardee School of Global Studies. He is currently Chairman and Co-Founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and Washington, D.C. A graduate of West Point, where he's also taught, PhD in American diplomatic history from Princeton, he served in the U.S. Army for many years earlier during the Vietnam War and didn't retire until the early 90s after, after he served in the Gulf War and finally retired at the rank of colonel. Andrew was a key voice during the Niebuhr revival of the early 21st century, if not one of its chief catalysts And his works are way too many to count. Andrew, such a pleasure. Welcome. Oh, thank you. So today we're discussing with Andrew his introduction to the most, uh, I believe it's still the most recent print of Niebuhr's The Irony of American History. Um, And check the date, people. We're uh, publishing the episode on America's birthday, July the 4th talk about irony and American history, but also we should say the day after we publish this, so tomorrow for those listening, is Andrew's birthday. So happy birthday, Dr. (laughs) Basevich.
2: Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) How appropriate, by the way, for an American historian to be born on July the 5th. (laughs) Um, So how this is gonna work is each of us have read Andrew's introduction to the irony of American history, and we have prepared questions I'll ask the first, and then Zach, and then Aaron, and around and around we'll go until about an hour, and then we'll start wrapping up. So my first question to you, Dr. Bacevich, um, actually has nothing to do with the intro. Uh, in a roundabout way, it might have something to do with it, but could we uh, get your snapshot assessment, just on the spot, sorry to do this, uh, of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, the coup attempt, or whatever that was, your ukrainian counteroffensive and america's role so far in the conflict
2: well i think among all the uh the the voices that we're hearing right now all the various analyses uh i will offer a point of view that is distinct and unique and that is i have no idea what's going on <laughs>
0: that is very rare these and days it
2: strikes me that really prudence dictates Uh, that we indicate that we really don't know what's going on. I mean, complex event, different culture, far, far away. You know, when folks uh, writing op-eds for the New York Times or sitting in a studio in New York City and pontificating on a a, a news show, it strikes me that we all ought to be modest and uh, engage in watchful observance here. My guess would be the story ain't over yet. Yeah, uh, That there could well be other dramatic events that that happen. But that's one guy's guess viewing events from far, far away.
0: I appreciate that. And I gotta be honest with you, we got to a point where we were kind of texting back and forth, the three of us following the current developments in, in Russia. And I was just like, guys, we can't know. We don't know what's going on. And that was everything you just said, but also, just dealing with modern contemporary media, people following sources that we're still unsure about on Twitter. They're new to a lot of us. People supposedly on the ground, people supposedly with with knowledge of what's happening. And media has provided its own sense of ambiguity that we that we have to admit we just we just can't know what's going on.
2: It's actually, it would be interesting to speculate on what Niebuhr would make of all this. Yeah, I sure. mean, uh, a very prolific uh, writer, someone who was not uh, at all reluctant about expressing his opinion, his views about events of the day. And would he leap into this particular fray? You know, mm-hmm. my guess is, maybe because I admire him so greatly, my guess is that he would not. Uh, my guess is that in particular, as an American, know that he would he would counsel against the American tendency, particularly in the in the in the commentariat, uh, the tendency to claim to know things that really are not knowable. But Niebuhr is not with us, so we really can't say. No, I think that's right on.
3: I guess my question does have to do with the Ukraine conflict, too. And I know in the introduction, um, you say that Niebuhr's foreign policy was an attempt at striking a equilibrium power and do you see like america's role i mean i know we we don't know exactly what's happening but do you think america's response so far with providing like armaments to ukraine's defense is an example of what niebuhr would have uh idealized as an equilibrium for a u.s foreign policy
2: don't know seems to me that he would be supportive of arming ukraine hmm I mean, that he would be very forthright in condemning Russian aggression. I think he would be far more sensitive to the nuclear danger inherent in this crisis than is commonly the case with most commentators. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that strikes me is how dismissive uh, we have come to be about the possibility of nuclear weapons use initiated by the Russians. Yeah. Uh, which would be the most transformative event in international politics mm-hmm. since 1945, I think, eclipsing sure. the events of 1989. So Niebuhr, I think, and, and you, you remember in Irony of American History, the, the great attention he gives to nuclear weapons and to the, and to the threat of, of a nuclear uh, war. I think he would be far more sensitive to that than is the case with most mm-hmm. commentators. He would almost certainly counsel against overreaching. And in that sense, you know, here, we're just speculating. One would speculate that he probably would give fairly high marks to the Biden administration. Biden has been very forthright in condemning Russian aggression. He has been supportive of arming Ukraine. And yet he's not been way out in front on that. Uh, you know, if, if you tote up the amount of money that we've given to the Ukrainians, money in terms of, 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 of arms and, and, and munitions, it, it's a big number. But on the other hand, it's been done incrementally, and it's been done with Biden showing real hesitance along the way. You know, he had to be prodded into the, agreeing to provide uh, Abrams tanks. He had to be prodded into agreeing to allow other countries to provide uh, uh, F-16 fighters, uh, and the very fact that he had to be prodded into these things means that those weapons haven't arrived yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the interesting things is ostensibly the Ukrainians are now have now launched their highly touted uh, spring, I guess it's summer now, uh, counteroffensive but they're doing it without Abrams tanks. They're doing it without F-16 fighter planes. And that's because, at least in part, because Biden has been quite reluctant. So I would think that Niebuhr probably would would commend Biden for doing the right thing, and yet doing the right thing in a fairly measured and deliberate way. Uh, And I think he also, well, maybe not. I mean, Biden from time to time Uh, indulges in the sort of rhetoric that I think Niebuhr was disliked. Uh, Mm -hmm. And what I'm referring to here is Biden's tendency to describe international politics, broadly speaking, as this great cosmic contest that pits Mm -hmm. democracy against authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And of course, the subtext is that uh, the good guys will win, and the, and and the good guys will win because America aligns itself with the good guys.
0: And that's kind of probably a hangover from Cold War type of rhetoric mm-hmm. and thinking.
2: I think it is. It's 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 reviving it. It's it's, re, it's yeah. resuscitating it. Yeah. And you know, why does Biden do that? Because he believes it. Yeah, in in a way, it's because he believes it. And but in a way, I think it's because he he's a he's a career politician who is familiar with the the language the tropes of, of American politics and and he knows the lines that need to be recited yeah. and the lines are the same the lines that were recited going all the way back to World War two and, and throughout the Cold War you know of of good uh, against evil uh, of, of freedom against unfreedom and all of that of course Niebuhr would have been was indeed a uh, uh, wary of.
0: This is maybe a totally separate issue, but Niebuhr talks about a necessary illusion at times. Um, that perhaps and I and I'm wondering, does Biden have to talk this way at times to rally the people behind the Ukrainian cause?
2: Well, of course, I don't I really don't know what goes on in Biden's mind, but but if I had <laughs> to guess, I'd say yeah. You know, that uh again, he's a politician, he's a career politician, mm-hmm. he's somebody who who, to the, you know, to, to the tips of his fingers, uh, knows how to play the game mm-hmm. uh, and therefore, I'm repeating myself, but, but therefore he knows the lines that need to be recited. Yeah. And, and he does it. And because he's been reciting those lines for so long, he, he does it easily, smoothly, and this is where we can't say for sure, arguably, even sincerely.
1: Well, I I love to ask this question, and I already kind of know the story behind it, but I would love to have our listeners here, too. Uh, Why Niebuhr? What got you into him? Where did it start?
2: You you know, I barely remember, uh, but I I do know that I picked up a copy of Irony of American History at a yard sale, uh, you know, paid 75 cents, paid a buck, something like that for (laughs) it. first edition, hardbound, intact. And I brought it home and I read it. Uh, And I found it absolutely enthralling. Uh, And I didn't write anything about it immediately. But I was immediately drawn to Niebuhr as somebody whose sensibility and perspective resonated powerfully with me. And it was only after 9-11, by which time I had become an academic and was writing about US foreign policy, about the trajectory of America's role in the world and how it had changed over time, that I think it was then that I, I went back to irony and it spoke to me in, in a very powerful way. Uh, I think it, it it spoke it spoke so powerfully because of the moment, and we might say it was the George W. Bush moment. It was the moment after nine eleven when, when George W. Bush, who, who is not, I think, uh, in terms of, is uh, not is not a particularly eloquent man, uh, is certainly not a deep thinker, but nonetheless was trying to make sense of 9-11 and its aftermath and its implications for the American people and began to testify in, in powerful ways to the claims of American exceptionalism. So I think it was, the, it was, it was listening to Bush and thinking about irony, irony of American history, that, that that came together in a particular moment and and led me to to be to, to begin to incorporate Niebuhr in my own thinking and writing, uh, in in significant ways. I got to
0: ask, do you still have that old copy?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nice. I, we we downsized a few years ago, and so I had to get rid of a bunch of books, uh, but that is not one that I got rid of. It's still <laughs> sitting up there on my bookshelf. Amen, brother.
1: Am I so, correct that it was a it was a gift from a parent to their high school graduate.
2: Uh, I don't know how you know that, but yeah, because it's inscribed. <laughs> I don't remember the words, but you know, it's it's to Johnny from Mom and Dad. Congratulations. Oh, that's amazing.
1: You, you gave an awesome speech. I, I listened to it a couple of weeks ago. Uh. <laughs> um,
0: so more on that time, I, I, I'm i wondering if you could speak a little bit personally. So you've you've described yourself as a conservative Catholic. Um, and I can only imagine that you might've been on board with Bush's brand of compassionate conservative, uh, conservatism, and yet you were among the first to come out openly against the Bush administration in in several ways. Can you tell us the story of you coming to that decision on a personal level maybe, and, and then how much Niebuhr had to do with that?
2: Well, I don't know that I took compassion to conservatism all that seriously. OK, it it seemed to me at the time that it was a label that they had uh, some speechwriter, some political advisor had had conjured up in order to try to soften Bush's image as a candidate. Mm. You know, yes, I'm a conservative, but if I'm elected president, I will I will deal gently with you. And 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 I and I am I am a Christian. And there, and my Christi- my Christianity means something, and yeah. will mean something in the way I govern, and it will be good for the American people. So, I didn't. I don't think I took I took the phrase all that seriously. Uh, when when he became president, and he brought in a particular cast of characters, you know, his vice president Cheney, Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld going into the uh, the defense, defense department, accompanied by. Paul Wolfowitz as his deputy secretary, Condoleezza Rice as the national security advisor. He brought in uh, a, really an astonishingly seasoned and experienced team of advisors, contrasting with Bush himself, who for all practical purposes knew nothing about American statecraft. Uh, who who and I, were all cor- cold warriors as well. All cold warriors. Yeah. And, and and not only simply they are all cold warriors and we could throw we could throw Colin Powell into the into the mix as Secretary of State cold warriors who therefore saw victory in the Cold War the conclusion of the Cold War as uh, first of all a, a decisive turning point in world history mm-hmm. nothing like this had ever happened before and and it was a great and good thing that's that that's that spelled more great and good things to come if the United States would take advantage of the uh, opportunity that had been handed to us. So they were eager to put American power to work. Uh, That said, their initial perspective pre-9-11, their pre-9-11 perspective, was focused on things like the People's Republic of China, and the possibility of, of, of rivalry with the, with the Chinese strategic competitor, I think, was the, the, the phrase that was, uh, was, was, was used. Uh, they were gung-ho to expand NATO, uh, really, which even people will deny this, which was a way to punish Russia and take advantage of the favorable circumstances that resulted in Eastern Europe as a result of the end of the Cold War. What I'm not saying is, but what I mean is, they really didn't pay any attention to the possibility of being attacked by terrorists. Right. They certainly didn't pay any attention to the possibility of airplanes being hijacked and, and, and flown into skyscrapers. So they were caught totally by surprise. These, these seasoned, experienced national security experts were caught with their pants down. Uh, and it was left to poor Mr. Bush to therefore explain to the American people how this could happen and what, and what, what it meant and what needed to be done. And that's where, that's where Bush, in a sense, did even more dramatically what Biden is doing now, where he revived this language of American statecraft, revived the Manichaean framing of, of good against evil. Revive the claims of the inevitable triumph of freedom and democracy, revive the assertion that the history would not be brought to its intended end unless the United States played the role that, was, that, that history meant for the United States to play. Now, what I'm doing is I'm almost reciting a shorthand version of the irony of American history. Yeah. That is to say, Bush laid out a course of action, which was the course which Niebuhr warned against back in the early nineteen fifties, in the early days, early days of the Cold War. W- why did he do that? Well, he did that because he didn't know what else to do. I mean, you know, if you're the president on nine eleven, and somebody says you have to explain to the American people what occurred and what happens next, that's a that's a that's a tough task for anybody. Um, but I, but I think the other piece was that Bush, Bush himself and, and Bush's advisors believed emphatically in, in the reality of American military supremacy. Uh, and therefore they didn't hesitate to embark upon a global war against terrorism. Not, 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 a, not a Middle East war, a global war against terror. And, and, and against what? Against a tactic, against an idea Uh, in in retrospect, we all view the entire enterprise as preposterous, didn't appear preposterous to the Bush White House back in the fall of 2001. Uh, So I I think it was that moment in particular that for people like me, and certainly not me alone, uh, caused us to say, hey, wait a second, Reinhold Niebuhr warned us about this kind of thinking and, and therefore, what does Niebuhr have to tell us now? And that's when I think that's when the Niebuhr revival, which to my mind has now passed, but that's when the, the the Niebuhr revival, I think, got its start.
0: And you could see Bush, I, I think, one of the more overt ways that, that you could totally, in retrospect, see him doing this. I believe it was one of his State of the Union addresses where he he label He comes up with this idea of the axis of evil, right? And he has Iraq, Iran, and North Korea, right? Which is a strange uh, combination, of, like with unique challenges to each of them, and to kind of conflate them and put them all together as like the evil that we're setting ourselves against. But, but, That's kind of an oversimplistic view of the world.
2: No kidding. But the, the key term in that formulation is Axis. Yeah. What do you mean Axis? Oh, you're referring to the echoes of another Axis. Yeah. The Axis of Nazi Germany and Fascist Italy and Imperial Japan. Yeah. So Bush is saying that Axis has, has come back in another, in another form. Yeah. And, 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 and the existence of that Axis is what therefore justifies us embarking upon this, this war. And, and it, it's the existence of that axis which allows us to set aside prohibitions. For example, the prohibition against uh, a preventive war uh, yeah. because the evil is so great and America is so good uh, and the mission is so profound uh, that we can, be, we, we, can, we can set aside constraints that we expect other nations to uh, adhere to.
3: Um, this might be a two-parter, but obviously the chairman and the co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible statecraft. Um, And I wonder if if you could just maybe in the first part of this question, just kind of expound maybe what you think the a core, some of the core tenets of what are it, what it means to be uh, what, is, what is responsible safecraft is. And then my second part of the question is, um, in the introduction, you you mentioned two big issues that uh we face in in america especially with is a messianic conscience and a childlike innocence and i think we're in a period now that's these things have only um become more uh, commonplace messianic complex i mean there there are people in the republican party today who believe they're divinely inspired i mean i think lauren boebert just basically said yesterday that she has been called by God to deliver her assessment. Um, and so I'm wondering if, you know, what, what challenges or ways in which a person who is responsibly in the position of doing statecraft can respond to those sort of messianic consciousness and childlike innocence.
2: Yeah. I don't, I actually don't know that. I think that we're in a particular moment when the messianic consciousness is very powerful. Mm. uh what, What's her name? Bobert. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah. I don't think she qualifies as a particularly influential person. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> she's, 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 <laughs> she's she gets on TV a lot and she gets on yeah. TV a lot because she says outrageous things. Yeah. But I don't think anybody thinks that she's about to become a leader in her party. Mm. She's 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 an example of some of the wild thinking uh, that is evident, frankly, in both parties. Mm-hmm. but particularly in the Republican Party. Uh, but I, I wouldn't credit her. I wouldn't signal her out as somebody who really sure. tells us much about the temper of American politics. Maybe mm-hmm. I just contradicted myself because it is a wild time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> She's sorry, maybe an I, extreme example yeah. of, of something. I lost track of the second question, though.
3: Well, I was wondering, you know, uh, in your role as chairman and uh, and co-founder of the, oh, Qu- okay, yeah. got
2: it. Yeah. Okay, so, so the Quincy Institute for Responsible Take if we take our name from John Quincy Adams, mm-hmm. who historians generally view as a as a not particularly successful president, uh, who who historians admire at the tail end of his political career when he returned to the House of Representatives and became a crusader against slavery. But for our purposes, he he is significant for his service as Secretary of State. Uh, I think many historians think he was the greatest Secretary of State we've ever had. You could argue that the competition hadn't been very strong lately. Uh, but, but in particular, we are drawn to something that he gave on a Fourth of July speech, uh, in which he before the congress ceremonial event in which he warned against americans going abroad in search of monsters to destroy that was the, that's the famous phrase from the speech in search of monsters to destroy mm. and he warned that should we indulge in that should we do that that we would be putting our own democracy at risk mm. uh that uh, it, and and i think that is the point of departure for the quincy institute mm. we are not isolationists We're not pacifists. We believe in the need for a prudent, prudent defense. We are by and large anti interventionists, that is to say, we're very cautious about the circumstances when the United States should use its military power. And in our view, uh, ever since the end of the Cold War, we've used it recklessly and, and, and fecklessly and foolishly. And it's been very costly for us and costly for other people as well. So our byword is restraint. We believe in a foreign policy based on restraint. We believe in engagement, uh, but, but again, cautious, caution when it comes to the use of, of military power. What would that translate to in specific terms, in terms that Niebuhr might, might recognize? Well, I think the one is that we no longer believe, we, we think that we're, we're uncertain that there ever was a unipolar order. Uh, But we're pretty sure that if there was, that that day has passed, Mm. and that that what we have today or or at least are rapidly moving toward is a multipolar order, in which there will not be one single superpower that calls the shots. Mm. We are and will be a superpower, but we're not going to be the only great power. Obviously, China has emerged as a peer competitor, to use that kind of language, but as a as a a nation that is a great nation and we're going to have to share the planet with. We'd go beyond that. We would say that there are other great powers. The European Union, in its odd way, certainly qualifies, but so does India. So despite the recklessness of Mr. Putin, does Russia. Then there's a second tier of countries that may not be great powers themselves, but have to be taken seriously, like Japan, like Turkey, arguably like Brazil, certainly, certainly India. So, what our view is that the the, the key goal of American statecraft is to try to, to to nudge this emerging multipolar order toward some semblance of mutual coexistence. Mm-hmm. We're not going to love each other. We're not going to. Necessarily, endorse one another's values, but we want to coexist without war. We think that the challenge of doing that is enormous, but we think that's what ought to be the focal point of American statecraft. And I guess add add to the further element of complexity would be to remind ourselves about uh, global challenges like the climate crisis, and to say that that you know the you ain't gonna you ain't gonna do anything about the climate crisis unless you've got some semblance of global stability among the most powerful in hmm. cooperation among right. the most powerful nations of the world. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're about. So we get real worried about this new Cold War with China that everybody seems to be applauding. Uh, we, get, we, get, we get worried about the tendency toward interventionism, muted now, but nonetheless, that has been a, a powerful element in US foreign policy uh, in the Middle East, And we get nervous about people who uh, engage in the kind of Russophobia that I think uh, accompanies a lot of the rhetoric uh, in relation to the Ukraine war.
0: Interesting. Um, Now, when you use that quote by John Quincy Adams with monsters, holding that together with irony of American history, I can't help but think of Don Quixote. And the warning is against don quixote and and being quixotic in the world as well and i imagine that that's uh, a a large temptation that your uh, think tank is trying
1: to caution us against
2: that's correct well said
1: yeah um so many so many questions i want to ask um you, you talked a lot about niebuhr's use of modesty or um i think i'm, I'm grasping that correctly that it was a that it was an effective tool against some of our pretensions I'm wondering, though, about kind of some of the reactions to that modesty, because I feel like sometimes, especially in our current political climate, it seems like whoever demonstrates a sense of modesty in their politics is seen sort of as a, um, especially regarding foreign policy, it seems like they're seen kind of as um, weak. Um, And I'm wondering if you still think that that would be an effective um, means for approaching uh, foreign policy.
2: Let's go back to George W. Bush, who was immodest uh, to a to a, uh, an enormous degree, uh, immodest in his ambitions for remaking the greater Middle East, leading to disaster. You know, countless lives lost, countless lives ruined, and I'm not just referring to American lives here. I guess one of the things that strikes me is in the present moment, I mean, one, one might say that the... The, the the course and outcome of the global war on terrorism should have brought to the forefront the, the wisdom of somebody like Reinhold Niebuhr. And that today in Washington DC, we'd have Reinhold Niebuhr fans running all over the place cautioning against the misuse of American power. Instead, what has happened is that the rather obvious lessons of the global war on terrorism have been forgotten. What, what are we, two years since the end of the Afghanistan war? Mm-hmm. Longest war in our nation's history, a 20 year effort that ends in collapse, almost instantaneous collapse of the state that we labored so long and so hard to build. <laughs> and yet the salience of Afghanistan in, in our politics today is Close to zero. Uh, now, why is that? In to a significant extent, I think it's it's because of Ukraine. That Ukraine has created this opportunity to forget what what we find painful to remember. So we don't have to we don't have to reflect on how we could have gone so wrong in Afghanistan, because now we can blame Vladimir Putin for being a bad guy, and we can. Commend ourselves for supporting uh, the government of Ukraine in its effort to defend itself against Russia.
0: What's the difference between, I guess, proselytizing democracy and something like nation building toward democracy? So when well, when, don't we're, don't talk- when I, we're talking about
2: that's not the contrast I'd use. Not proselytizing. It's it's. I think it's modeling okay the distinct the, 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 you can model democracy and you can try to shove it down somebody else's throat yeah. uh and i think that the quince institute we certainly believe in democracy for heaven's sakes you know right. we believe in in all we believe in the in in all the rights that are uh enumerated in the bill of rights nor do we think that those rights are exclusive to americans they should be universally applied absolutely
0: but what's the core difference between a successful campaign like that with Japan. And, you know, talking World War Two, like.
2: Well, right why not? But two see, you're, put, you're putting and- your finger on it. I mean, the, 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 yeah, the, this is the frequently asked question. Well, we democratize Germany and we democratize Japan. Doesn't that doesn't that indicate that we have a particular knack for being able to do these kinds of things? And therefore, what's the us from applying it elsewhere, whether it's in Afghanistan or Iraq? I think the, the answer to the question is, guess what, 1945 was a rather unique circumstance. I mean, we didn't, we didn't simply wage a war against Germany and Japan. It was a war of, I'll use a, a, I'll use a term that is too reckless, but not by that much, a war of virtual extermination. I mean, the war against, against Japan ends with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we flatten those countries. And I think that if you flatten a country, if you, if you want to wage that kind of a war, then it probably becomes somewhat more possible to engineer what the emergent political order is going to look like. But of course, the moral costs of, of waging that kind of war are horrendous uh, and, and and certainly wouldn't I w- I wouldn't recommend them. Uh, so what's that say? It says that, that that you know state building is very very difficult, and, and requires finesse that and patience and knowledge that we tend not to have uh, in great abundance.
0: Um, if I can follow up, what's the line between defending a democracy like Taiwan? And managing history, which might, uh, which you know, many might accuse the U.S. of doing, if we help start World War III in our defense of Taiwan, uh, is a democracy on a little island worth defending if it starts World War III?
2: And the answer is no. <laughs> I mean, if 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 World War III leads to millions of people killed civilization effectively destroyed. No, defending Taiwan is not worth doing that. But of course, the premise of US policy, which I would say I broadly support, is that that's, that's a false choice. We don't, we don't have to choose between either defending Taiwan or destroying civilization. There is a middle course, and the middle course is this not fully satisfactory, ambiguous policy, of recognizing that Taiwan is part of China, and also arguing strongly with both the Chinese and the Taiwanese to accept this status quo as imperfect and yet preferable to the alternative of of war. And that concept has held Ever since Nixon's trip to China back in the 19 what early 1970s, although today uh, it seems to be somewhat precarious. To some degree, it becomes precarious because of the the rhetoric coming out of Beijing. To some degree, it becomes precarious because of the rhetoric coming out of foolish Republican politicians who who seem to think that a, a war to defend Taiwan would be a would be a good thing. I doubt if they're going to rush town to enlist if it happens. However,
0: I got to love the ambiguity in action. It seems like Niebuhr would appreciate this of Biden kind of playing a bad cop and saying we will defend. And then the, the Pentagon and State Department's like, whoa, you know, and they kind of backtrack a little bit. And like, so I, that well, little one, dance one is would, really intriguing. One
2: would like to know the content of the conversations between ourselves and and the Chinese and, and with, with the government of Taiwan. I mean, you know, all, all we can see is what's on the surface. Yeah. You know, all, all we can see and, and, and evaluate are the public comments, which we don't have, we don't have access to what's said in private. And my guess is that what's said in private is very, very important here. So if, if nothing else is because what's said in private begins to, to draw red lines of what's view it as permissible and what's viewed as as impermissible by either side.
1: So would you call that like, so I was trying to understand in, in your chapter and trying to get a good grasp of this idea of, of modesty and predicting what is to come. And so do you think that like, what you've just kind of laid out would be kind of uh, in a way a way to approach these issues with that certain modesty about, instead of just rushing to predict what's gonna happen, taking a, um, yeah, would, the, would what you just described be a demonstration of that uh, modesty?
2: I don't know. I mean, I think, it, it, my, to, I'm talking about modesty with regard to what power can accomplish. Uh, I mean, it would be wonderful. Uh, you know, we, we so frequently claim to be the most powerful country on the planet. It would be wonderful if we were so powerful that we could guarantee guarantee in perpetuity the security and democratic uh, uh, democracy in on the island of Taiwan. That would be a wonderful thing. It would be a wonderful thing for the people of Taiwan. It'd be a wonderful thing to remove the possibility of a war being fought across the across the, the, the Taiwan Straits, but we can't do that. So mod- modesty is about recognizing the limits of American power and and American power with regard to Taiwan is indeed quite limited. And therefore that becomes a reason to be prudent about the things that we say.
1: Mm.
3: Now,
2: uh, Dr. Patrus,
3: I- there's a weird sense. So, I was driving with my stepdad the other day and uh, <clears throat> Father's Day, <clears throat> taking him out for a drink. And uh, he says to me that, you know, when I was a kid, it was so different. And I'm sure for my mother, it was really different. But he expressed his sincere concerns about how fast technology and stuff is progressing and beyond our control. And just hearing your comments on power, I wonder if you have this position where we should really reflect on the limits to US power. And I wonder if in the subconscious or the collective conscious of most Americans, we equate power with the limitless possibilities of technology. And as you say in your chapter, um, nothing in history is inevitable, including the possible. So, I wonder um, if in starting to maybe in not educate or light my poor terms to use, but to influence US foreign policy, even on the ground level with uh, just regular, everyday working people, like how, who also fear technology destroying their industries and their hometowns, how would, do, do you see the mixing and matching of, of ideas and concepts here between power and technology? And how might we refocus or? reorient ourselves to a a more modest view
2: of power? Well, I mean, as a conservative, I have great concern about the way technology is hijacking our culture. And I think most Americans are blind to what's happening. I mean, on the one hand, they, they indulge it. On the one hand, they can't put their phones down. On the one hand, they insist upon having access to an infinite number of TV programs at their beck and call. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and that these are expectations of what our way of, uh, they're central, have become central to our way of life. Uh, On on the other hand, I think they are blind to the insidious uh, impact. I mean, and I I don't, I mean, I, I, I feel the impact myself, even though I try real hard to avoid overindulging in that in in the in that world. But I think, and I'm stumbling here to answer your question, but I, I think what we have is a collective blindness to the changes that are afoot in our society mm-hmm. should be a source of great, great, great concern. Mm. Uh, we don't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, art, whether we're talking about artificial intelligence and intelligence or whatever else, and and here too, it seems to me that our our politics is simply totally inadequate to the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that Republicans and Democrats argue so vociferously about are just almost irrelevant yeah. uh, to what ought to be the larger concerns of American society about. About the trajectory of our of our, of our of our culture.
0: It's interesting that Niebuhr wrote an article in the fifties, controversially saying he's more fearful of the television than the nuclear bomb. <laughs> and uh, and I think that's interesting. That says a lot about our culture. That uh, perhaps we should be more fearful of um, artificial's impact, uh, artificial intelligence's impact on misinformation and things like that rather than the artificial intelligence itself like hijacking drones and turning against you know uh the 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 doomsday doesn't come from uh, you know these things we create it's the perversion of culture and the uh the dissolution of our collective bonds
2: well said now on the other hand i agree with i agree with that emphatically on the other hand in my own life and and I, I am blessed in my family life beyond any calculation. We just came back this weekend from a, my 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 wife. Her family is extraordinary. Her parents had fifteen children. No, and her mother died young. And her father married a widow with six children. Wow, and then they had two. <laughs> equals twenty three. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and just over this past weekend, there was a family reunion out in Indiana. Did bring everybody together. I didn't do a head count. Probably eighty percent of the people were there. So it was a massive, a massive event. And necessarily, in in a family that large, there's going to be a pathologies. You know, there's going to be people who have problems with alcohol or problems with drugs or people who, uh, whose marriages don't work out, kids who get in trouble in school, you know. And I don't mean everybody across the board, but I mean mm-hmm. the problems of real life are necessarily going to be present in a very large family like that. On the other hand, an incredible amount of love, an incredible sense of identity of being part of this group called a family, people valuing that. And, and, and I guess what I mean, and I'm not saying it very well, but I mean, it, I, I think that there are that there's something in our humanity that causes us to, to, to cling to, to insist upon re- retaining aspects of our, our lives, that weren't terribly different from what they were fifty years ago or a hundred years ago.
0: Yeah.
2: That we 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 want to we want to love those who are of our clan, and we want to be loved by them. And I, I I say that because even though I come close to despair about the impact of technology and social media and the like on our on our on our culture, there there, there is a, a quiet pushback I think, hmm. of, of people unwilling to surrender the aspects of humanity that we carry over from from earlier generations yeah. and that gives me at least a small amount of, of hope small yeah. amount but 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 yes some hope That's beautiful
1: um, At the end of your chapter you quoted Niebuhr uh, and he says, should the United States perish? The ruthlessness of the foe would be only secondary, uh, the secondary cause of the disaster. The primary cause would be that, would be that the strength of a giant nation was directed by eyes too blind to see all the hazards of the struggle. And the blindness would be induced not by some accident of his, of nature or history, but by hatred and vainglory. You said in your. Uh, you said in the chapter also that you think that this is the the greatest uh, the greatest book on foreign policy. And sometimes I think we can see the the foe as external. We can we can look like I, I love that you quoted that. We can always kind of place the foe as external. and we have a really hard time turning and looking at the United States and seeing kind of um, <clears throat> some of those issues. All that to say, do you feel like right now, we're at a time um, when we're when, when that is most apparent or ha- most apparent in a long time. Because when I read that, I, I was immediately like, man, that feels really relevant right now. It feels really relevant to my context in kind of a rural setting and some of the politics that go on, um, that there's this kind of heightened, almost um, just very apparent expression of um, hatred and vainglory.
2: No doubt about it. I mean, it it is my view that Donald Trump, the individual, is not very important and that history will will not see his presidency as particularly important. Hmm. But Trumpism is crucially important. You know, call it Trumpism, call it populism, Hmm. call it this hostile reaction directed toward American elites, whatever label you want to attach to it. But I think the divisions that it is it is, I was about to say cause, but that, that would be incorrect. Divisions that it has made manifest in our society are are crucially uh, important, uh, and I don't blame the Trumpists. I think that they are a symptom rather than a cause, and it, and, and and the real problem is the way that American society has failed. A very substantial number of our fellow citizens some of whom actually happen to be white people some of whom happen to be not white people but nonetheless there is i think a widespread recognition of something fundamentally amiss and 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 that recognition then takes the forms that we see for example the assault on the capitol on on, on january 6th and the, the part that brings me close to despair is that it's difficult to see very many people in our, in our politics at the national level who are able to recognize that or show any willingness to deal with that. They're fighting their, 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 their partisan fights. Uh, and in, in a sense, the, the, the ship of state continues to head straight onto the rocks. So this is,
0: um, this is my last question, um, Dr. Bacevich, um Has to do with the, the good fortune kind of aiding our illusions uh, that you were talking about and that Niebuhr talks about in Irony of American History. Um, this good fortune you speak of that gave America these illusions of grandeur, uh, many of these are still around today. We're still protected by thousands of miles of oceans on both sides. Yep non-hostile neighbors to the North and South, a country rich in resources. Right. But what are some of the ways we are perhaps more fortunate than others that may tempt us toward illusions in the future? And I and I have kind of one particular comment that I want your reaction on. So what if China passes us in GDP? Do potential illusions about the inherent goodness or whatever of capitalism and democracy uh, crumbled when an autocratic guided economy passes capitalism?
2: Yeah, I don't know, but I think it's a very relevant question uh, because you know being number one in all kinds of ways, but in particular, I think being number one economically has been Central to our self, collective self identity, since probably since the turn of the 20th century, yeah. uh, we expect to be the rich country, not the only rich country, but the but the richest country. Yeah. And and how Americans will react to, and it, I think it's probably inevitable, uh, will react to the fact that there's somebody richer uh, is is a very good question. I, I fear that it would cause some kind of a hostile reaction. You know, that's unacceptable. We got to go get those guys. Yeah. Uh, what what Niebuhr would counsel, I think, what he would hope for is it would be a, 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 a stimulus to self-reflection. You know, maybe that's not, maybe that shouldn't be central to our identity. Maybe we can be, the second or third richest country in the world, and yet still pursue uh, efforts to create a society that's just and equitable and consistent with the the aspirations expressed by by the by the founders of our republic. Uh, I'd like to think that that will happen. I don't have much confidence that it will, however.
0: It's a scary thought because. There needs to be an like a, an irony of American history part two that discusses this because we have to come up with more reasons that, you know, capitalism and democracy are good than just being number one, like you say, like yes. it's a better life in general. And that argument needs to be made
2: a point well made by you just now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so just going off a of Cliff's question real
3: quick, um, I, I know it, read something by John Milbank once that said uh democracy a democracy is only ever as good as its citizens right and we're we, we've obviously talked a bit about you know the the simplicity of like how most people today or some people have a manichaean worldview of this is good or this is bad or this is cheating and this is this is a good this is a good thing um and i'm wondering like as a responsible uh, person who is responsible in their statecraft, how does a person who works in the government or is a, is a figurehead of the state actually show the public the ambiguities of
2: political and moral choices? How do they model that for the citizenry? Well, I think Obama tried to. Yeah. Of course, memory. Obama famously said that Niebuhr was his, famous, his favorite, uh, I think he called him a philosopher. Yeah. Uh, and I think Obama tried real hard to, to steer away from the Manichaean view of international politics. Uh, I think that his failure in that regard, or at least the limits of his success, showed just how hard it's going to be to do that. Mm-hmm. That, that the Manichaean view, the, the, the claims of American exceptionalism, are so deeply embedded in our politics that even a really smart president like obama can't just make a couple of speeches and and makes them make them go away so when we as we look forward to the next election we'll we'll hear all kinds of speeches about how great america is and how wonderful our freedom is and how the rest of the world owes us uh, because people calculate that wins votes
1: do you uh this is my final question do you uh you boldly declare in the book that you think that this is the greatest uh book on foreign policy uh American foreign policy do you still feel that way all these years later
2: oh absolutely there's no question no question about it. i think i think it continues to be a, a profound uh, analysis and it and it is as relevant today as it was when it appeared back in i think it was 1952 uh and i think one of the reasons why we have these periodic Niborian revivals is because people, from time to time, come to appreciate the the dimensions of his achievement. So they come back to Nibor, uh, and and we'll come back to Nibor again, even if the, even if right now his reputation may be in some eclipse. But we'll come back to him again because he divines something essential about who we are as a people and about the way we situate ourselves in the stream of history.
0: Dr. Andrew Bacevich, thank you so much for being on with us today. It was an honor and a privilege. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much. Good luck to you guys. Thanks.
0: All right. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. I want to thank again our guest Dr. Andrew Basevich, and I want to thank you the listener for tuning in like and subscribe, write us a good review. Uh, If you're enjoying it, I'm telling you for a small podcast, you know, with a very niche subject matter, liking, subscribing, writing good reviews just really helps the show. Um, All right, everybody, take care and stay stay safe out there.